Yes, my name is Bond, James Bond. Do you expect me to talk? No, who, Mr. Bond? I expect you to die. Tom, what do you think you're doing? Keeping the British hand up, sir. Grow up, 007. Yes, hello and welcome to podcast number eight, the film classification podcast from the BBFC. And we have a special theme this edition. It is the 50th anniversary of the James Bond films, which of course means it's the 50th anniversary of the very first James Bond film coming in to the board. So that's going to be our special edition this time. My name is Blatch, James Blatch, and co-heading this with me is the evil Craig Lapper, a senior examiner at the board. Are you okay cast as the baddie in this piece? Absolutely. Good. I think you're happy with that, aren't you? I normally am the baddie. Yeah. And uh, you were described, I think, in The Observer or The Guardians being delightfully dry? I think that was The Times. The Times, delightfully mm. dry. Like mm. a toddler, you're trying to get out of his pull-ups. Absolutely. Nice. Okay, so Craig Lapper and I are going to go through the Bond films a little later. Craig has a mine of information on it from uh, the very first Doctor No to the very latest Skyfall. And more Skyfall in a moment. Uh, but I want to start, as always, with the news and latest films that are coming through the building. I'm going to start with the BFI Film Festival. Uh, which is going to be marking the 100th anniversary of the BBFC. The season's called Uncut, implying that um, it's an opportunity to see various films as they were originally intended by their makers. And uh, one of the headlines is that we're going to be showing Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom in its full uncut glory. For the, was that for the first time in the cinema? Screen? Yes, it's the first time it's had a cinema screening in that version in the UK. Um, it was a film that caused a few problems back in the early 80s. Of course, Raiders of the Lost Ark had been very popular and had been passed at the A-level, which was what the PG was called back then. Um, but when Temple of Doom came in, we found that the filmmakers had upped the ante somewhat and there were scenes of gore and violence in the film that were a problem for us at the, the PG they were looking for. So quite a few edits were originally made to the film. Uh, of course, nowadays, when we have the 12A certificate, um, it's possible for us to accommodate the film at that level. So that, that will be the first screening of the uncut version in the cinema, and it will be coming out subsequently on Blu-ray. Yeah, we've had it submitted for video as well, which is great. Uh, the season is curated by the film critic Mark Commode uh, and the professor in film studies at Southampton University, Linda Ruth Williams, and it runs throughout November at the BFI here in London. So we're going to be going down to a few of those, and I think that's a good way of really highlighting the changing work of the, the organisation, because you'll see, well, as you say, things are done a little bit differently over the the years, aren't they? And uh, the way we deal with films has perhaps become more nuanced, more sophisticated now than it was. Is that fair to say? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, I think what's interesting about the season as well is that we've we've tried to pick um, quite a broad range of films looking at a variety of different issues, but also steer away from some of the films that are normally spoken about. So we're not showing the obvious choices the like... Uh, well, we're, we're not showing The Exorcist, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Clockwork Orange, those kind of films that um, everybody has seen many times. We've tried to focus on some of the films that uh, get fewer outings, certainly at the cinema, and films where perhaps some of the classification issues are less well known. Yeah, very good. Um, also coming up uh, in the near future, Sunday the 28th of October, the Duke of York Cinema in Brighton 
is a screening of the Evil Dead, followed by a panel of special guests. Do you know who's going to be on that panel of special yes, guests? Yes, I, I, I think I'm going to be on that, um, together with the director of Kill List and uh, Sightseers, which is coming out soon. Yeah, and uh, Empire Magazine's Chris Hewitt and mm -hmm. Ben Wheatley. Yeah. So uh, uh, that was interesting. I always quote Evil Dead not only as an illustration of um, of how things change for the consumer, but also how filmmaking changed. This was a time when people like Sam Raimi picked up a video camera, went out and made a film in the woods that they'd scripted and wrote themselves very cheaply. Five or six years before that, you would have needed thousands of dollars, you would have needed lights and technical operators to make a film, and that's that was a massive change, and it, uh, it obviously precipitated a change in our business as well. Yeah. Okay, it's a busy news section because I also want to mention the book Behind the Scenes at the BBFC. It's finally, we've got a date for it, the 23rd of November, it's going to be published. Uh, you can actually pre-order it at Amazon, Foils and Waterstones. It's going to be 16.99, published by the BFI's publishing wing. And uh, Craig, just a quick note about the book. Um, lots of different chapters, lots of different authors actually, and a really good look back at uh, how the BBFC is operated and changed over the years. Yes, we've got uh, 10 chronological chapters looking at the board from its uh, inception in 1912 um, up to the present day. Uh, we've invited a number of writers and academics to contribute individual chapters, so there'll be some interesting variations in what individual chapters are focusing on. So some look more at uh, British films, some look at more at uh, aspects such as the law and classification. And the last couple of chapters are actually written by our current director, David Cook, and our previous director, Robin Duval. So it's a real mixture of uh, interesting information from inside and outside perspectives. Get your pre-orders in. Uh, I also wanted to mention on the website are from the archive series. Uh, Jen Evans in this building, who looks after the archive department, has been studiously uh, reproducing some of the original examiner's reports. I think she's got 18 films up there now. The latest is uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which we mentioned just a few moments ago. So you can read the original examiner's impressions of these films and how we dealt with it. Uh, it's also Romancing the Stone, Day of the Dead, George Ramirez, Day of the Dead, uh, Terminator 2, and Psycho even. So a really, really interesting collection. Like I can tell we all read them when these uh, archives come out. Part of uh, one of the joys of our job, Craig, I think you'll probably agree, is when you do get these old paper files that come on your desk for an old film. Sometimes it's a classic film you've heard of, sometimes it isn't. Always fascinating to read how the board dealt with things, and sometimes there's little informal notes that flew backwards and forwards between people like John Trevelyan and directors. I always love reading that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's always interesting, especially when you've met some of these uh, examiners who worked at the board in the 1970s, 1980s, and uh, getting used to their particular styles of writing reports, um, which, which can be quite distinctive. And we mentioned earlier, in terms of films that are coming through our doors at the moment, one very high-profile film is Skyfall. It has been classified by the BBFC, and the first thing that everyone noticed uh, was the fact that it's quite long. It's 144 minutes, and uh, I believe, according to one website, and you probably know if this is true or not, that it's the second longest Bond film after Casino Royale. It is a 12A, uh, which uh, probably won't be a surprise if you follow this world carefully, because 12A is a big commercial category, and Bond was probably always going to be headed for that uh, area. Um, released probably by the time you're listening to this podcast. More about Bond in a moment. Our competition winner. So the question for the from the last podcast, um, 
is, do you know the character name of Maverick from Top Gun? Pete Mitchell, Lieutenant, well, Lieutenant, I should say, because the United States Navy, Pete Mitchell. And uh, we did get a lot of entries, and we drew a name out of the hat, and the winner was Martin Hollis from uh, Edinburgh, uh, EH7 Edinburgh. You know where that is, if you know your postcodes. Martin, congratulations, well done. A goodie bag is on its way to you. Now, we're going to talk bond classifications in a moment. Before then, our interview. In 2010, the government announced that it wanted to explore concerns about the sexualisation and commercialisation of children. And to that end, they asked Reg Bailey, the Chief Executive of the Mothers' Union, to compile a report with recommendations. Let Children Be Children was published in the summer of last year. Uh, it's a really interesting read. We contributed to Reg's evidence gathering with that. And with so much crossover, I thought it was a good opportunity to revisit the subject. So I wandered down Whitehall to the Mothers' Union near Parliament Square and started by picking up on a theme in Reg's report about the lack of control parents can feel in this modern age about what their children are exposed to. I've been used in my day job at Mother's Union to talk to lots of US parents and a lack of confidence in parents. In the whole task of parenting is something that's very obvious when you meet them in particular. And I think that's exacerbated when you burst into what I would call the new technology areas. They're aware that their children are so very, very different from everybody who they were just that single generation. And are scared of technology. And in some ways, technology becomes almost an excuse to not be able to stand up to activities. And so um, I think if you're lost in your parents' own, I don't understand how to put them in control. And the kids don't have to do that very hardly. And often it's revealing a deep seated lack of confidence about what they feel about it. It's nothing really to do with technology, it's not quite just the other. One of the things that concerned me right through the review was that there was, it's probably the easier passages to say, get to be regulated in this city. For example, mandatory imposition of parental controls on devices. And it seems to me that that has been more effectively halted by what the problem was with the interface. Are we also being perfect? And actually, the best possible filter that we can have is a confident emotional resilient child, one who knows that it's a door they are going to close. And that comes through an engagement with parents and giving parents that opportunity to be confident in their students and have that privilege. Interesting things to people are going to be at this is that you know the idea that parents would take such a large role at 12 hours, 15, if discussing with the child what a father is to do isn't appropriate for them, absolutely. And uh, a lot of parents lack that confidence to, to do that. That's why next year, some of the stuff that we've lost with us, the consumer advice stuff that people have put on there, not just the rating, but the consumer advice that talks a bit about what common practice is is very helpful for parents to consult with. But then they don't have the confidence to say why they don't want to do this work in something in particular, or what's wrong with another company. You mentioned at the beginning of the report that regulation is not probably everything that you are following or the other side of your organization. But there's a comment I would have to say that when there is regulation, business districts engage more with regulation and customers about regulation. And when there isn't regulation, businesses take a sense of responsibility. Yeah. And I don't think, I don't think 
Thank you. 
Reg Bailey talking to me earlier. 007 reporting for duty. Where the hell have you been? Enjoying death. I only have one question. Why not stay dead? There's no shame in saying you've lost a step. I'm your new quartermaster. You must be joking. I want to meet your employer. Be careful what you wish for. Mr. Bond. James Bond. Well, he's back. Bond is back. 007 in Skyfall hitting cinemas. Uh, 12A classification, as we mentioned earlier, for moderate action violence, one use of strong language, uh, a fairly straightforward classification. It wasn't always so, and we are going to go through Bond at the BBFC. We're going to start at the beginning, I guess, Craig Lapper, if we cast our mind back, you're far too young to have been here, but Dr No, 50 years ago, 105 minutes compared to 144 for Skyfall. Yeah. Um, and right from the beginning, actually, it wasn't straightforward, Bond, was he? No, not at all. Um, obviously, when you read some of the Ian Fleming novels, which the films bore more of a resemblance to in the early days, um, it's, it's not hard to imagine that the, the novels could have been adapted in a way that was quite adult. You know, so some of the uh, descriptions of sex and violence in the books are quite explicit, but it was always important for the producers of the film to avoid the X classification and tried to make the films, for, for, for commercial reasons, uh, suitable for a family audience. Um, I've got a section here from John Trevelyan's autobiography. John Trevelyan was the secretary of the BBFC from the late 50s to the early 70s, and he talks here about his treatment of Dr. No and the Bond films in general. Um, he says, when we had the first of these films, Dr. No, I had a discussion with Harry Salksman and we agreed that since he intended to make a series of these films, so this was as early as Dr. No, we should aim to get them all suitable for the A category, since X certificates will produce his viewing audiences. Then Trevelyan goes on to say, these films were essentially fantasies, Bond being the Superman of the 60s, who could not only get all the girls to bed without any difficulty, but could escape from any perilous situation, using violence and being quite callous about it, even to the point of joking about it. The agreement resulted in keeping the sex to a reasonable level, but we had some problems with the violence, and in most of the films we asked for some modifications. We were anxious to avoid having anything that was realistic or nasty, and then Trevelyan goes on to comment, it's of course arguable that by doing this we were encouraging people to avoid facing up to the realities of violence by making them laugh when Bond killed an enemy and made a joke about it. And then he concludes, however, although I have sympathy with this argument, I think our category decision was right. So if we look back at uh, the early files on the first few James Bond films, such as Dr. No, you'll see that a number of cuts were made in order to ensure that they got the A classification, which basically meant that under 16 should be accompanied by an adult. 
Um, and looking at Dr. No, you can see there are some cuts for violence, uh, re reducing the killing of Dent, um, a reduction in a fight sequence between Bond and a chauffeur, uh, reducing a sequence in which Bond is beaten up, and also in Dr. No's slightly more amusingly, the removal of the line, I'm sure she will amuse the guards, which was actually changed to, the guards will amuse her. <laughs> So, being sexually yeah, absolutely. So there was there was often an attempt to uh, tone down some of the fruitier examples of innuendo in the early Bond films. It's interesting that JT uh, John Trevelyan at that early stage they realised this was going to be what today they'd call a franchise, a major franchise, and they started setting out a consistency. The trim to the line, there is an interesting moment in the history of James Bond where we didn't trim a line of dialogue, we actually extended it. Yes, that's right. Um, th th there's been occasions in the past, particularly during the 1940s, 1950s, when the board used to look at scripts for advice and sometimes the board would suggest alternatives to the line that was in the script. So you would occasionally find examples, particularly in British films, where some of the dialogue was actually written by the BBFC, making one wonder whether we should have got a screenwriting credit. Yeah. But in, in the case of uh, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which was the one George Lazenby Bond film, the board objected to a line in the film in which Bond says, I feel a slight stiffness coming on. And the board's solution to this, which was accepted by the producers of the film, was to add, in my shoulder. And if you listen very carefully to the line of dialogue on the film today, you can still hear where that additional piece of dialogue has been added to the film. Yeah, so additional dialogue recording, ADR they call it, and who knew that the editors of that were the BBFC? Just a, a side note on that subject, Craig, you still do accept scripts occasionally? We do accept scripts occasionally. It tends to be for features that are produced in the UK and where, where the producers are really looking to target a particular audience, uh, normally the 12A audience. We probably only get two, three, maybe four scripts a year that we give advice on. Obviously the amount of advice we can give is limited by the fact that we haven't seen it yet and uh, a, a lot of the classification issues can come out. Uh, differently once they're realised on screen compared to how you imagined they were going to be at the script stage. But it, ca it can sometimes be a useful service for filmmakers to ensure that they're at least heading in the right direction. Okay, let's press on with Bond. From Russia with Love actually has quite a long list, doesn't it? Yes, we've got uh, the removal of various remarks about lovers and physical enjoyment. Uh, we've also got a, a shortening of the famous gypsy dance. Uh, another interesting dialogue cut, very similar to the one in Dr. No, the board suggested that the line, was I as exciting as all those Western girls, should be changed to, am I as exciting as all those Western girls, thus removing the implication that perhaps Bond had actually found out firsthand. I suppose the board obviously is working in the interests of of achieving this category, as John Trevelyan pointed out, but it is also fair to say they did ruin the jokes a couple of times here. Yes, the, the, there's always a risk with the Bond films, and to some extent with films like the Carry On films, that occasionally the removal of, uh, of some of the innuendo can end up spoiling the jokes, but I suppose it was particularly important to get these films out there to a family audience. What's also interesting is that the early Bond films, Dr No, From Rush With Love, Goldfinger, uh, are still cut today 
not because the board would object to any of that material now at PG or 12A, uh, but simply because the original material has been lost. So a conflation of sex and violence, not sexual violence, but a mm-hmm. conflation of sex and violence has been a bit of a hallmark of Bond. In terms of the violence, recognised right from the beginning, we often talk about today Bond being an unkillable hero, a known quantity. I mean, he's certainly not the first unkillable hero. We can go back to Flash Gordon and, and Biggles and... and you know, in fact, it was a shock when, when Sherlock Holmes was killed because he was basically an unkillable hero up until that point. But Although he survived. He survived. Well, he had to survive for commercial yeah. reasons under publishing pressure, but that's, yeah. that's a different story. Um, so, so we have this known quantity, and let me ask you then something I imagine a member of the public, in fact, I've been asked this before when I give talks, the public will ask, is there an allowance for James Bond at the BBFC? Well, there isn't a special allowance in the sense that a Bond film can get away with something that that an other film wouldn't. I think what is true to say is certainly the audience brings certain expectations to a Bond film that they may not bring to a a new and unfamiliar film. Um, And that's something that we we take account of uh, during the classification process, particularly if you've got material that is, is, is right on the cusp of two categories. I think it's fair to say that, generally speaking, it's it's unusual for members of the public to actually contact the board and complain about a Bond film, partly because it is such a well-known quantity, people have grown up with the Bond film, so when they see the new Bond film now, they, they, they have a broad idea of what they're expecting. That's not to say that occasionally when the series takes a slightly different uh, direction, bit of a gear change, that it, it, it can surprise people. Probably the most recent example was Casino Royale, where the film very much went back more to the original uh, Fleming source material and had a slightly tougher edge to to the violence, probably in response to the success of films like the Bond, the, the Bourne films at 12A. Uh, but that's, that's not the first time that's happened with Bond, of course, in 1989, we had the second film featuring Timothy Dalton, Licence to Kill, and that really was a bit of a change compared to what had come before. And surprisingly, when Licence to Kill was first seen by the BBFC, uh, the examiners were divided between whether it should be past 15 or 18. And in the end, uh, a number of cuts were made to the film to some of the gorier sequences, most notably the sequence with the man's head exploding in the pressure chamber, uh, just to get it down to the 15 level. Uh, That was immediately before the board introduced uh, the 12 classification uh, later that year. Um, So there wasn't enough time to cut the film down to the 12 level. That might have been possible in a few months' time when the 12 came in. And that sits as the only Bond at 15? Apart from the forthcoming Blu-ray set of the Bond films, which actually contains a stronger version of Casino Royale, because Casino Royale, we originally made some reductions in the famous torture sequence in order to ensure that it kept at the 12A level, and, and the Blu-ray of that reinstates part of uh, part of the material that was originally cut. And I just wanted to dwell on that for a second. I don't want to dwell on, um, on James Bond's testicles being tortured, but I want to dwell on the process that led up to that scene being trimmed, because that actually wasn't a formal process, that was an advice process. Can you just explain, as somebody, as a senior examiner who gets involved in the advice uh, process, how that operates? Yeah. F- 
obviously when you've got major films like the Bond films or, or, or any other major series, it's, it's important for the company, not only in the UK but also in the US, to know that they're heading in the right direction for the category that they want. So very often with major releases they'll be shown to the BBFC before the finished version of the film has been put together. So normally this will involve me and my other senior examining colleague, sometimes accompanied by the director, going to an external screening room to watch the film in an unfinished version. It may be a version that doesn't have opening and closing credits, it may be a version in which not all of the effects are ready yet, and we can give the company an idea of whether they're likely to achieve the category thereafter, and if not, what kind of modifications might get it down to the preferred level. So with Casino Royale, as with many of the recent Bond films, senior examiners and the director saw it a month or so in advance of its submission for formal classification. And in the case of Casino Royale, we were rather hoping that they wouldn't include the sequence in the novel that's so notorious in which uh, James Bond uh, is genitally tortured, but lo and behold, uh, wishing to remain faithful to the novel, the scene was there, probably a lot more discreet than it could have been, and certainly more discreet than the novel, but we did feel that that extended scene of torture went before, uh, beyond anything that had been seen before in a Bond film at the 12A level. So, so we did ask for a number of reductions to be made in that sequence to get the 12A. And we did get some complaints about the film subsequently, didn't we? we I think partly yeah. because it confounded expectations to an yeah. extent in, yeah. in being that gear change you yes, referred to. Yes, exactly, yeah. I think uh, although people were used to that level of very, actually very unrealistic but quite crunchy violence in, in films like the Bourne films, um, they were perhaps not expecting that from a Bond film. So, so it, became, it became as something of a shock to the first viewers, but I think since Casino Royale, uh, Quantum of Solace, which contained a similar style of violence, uh, w w was less of a surprise. So if you had to pick out a couple of other moments of interest in the way that the board's dealt with Bond over the years, Craig, what would you go for? Well, I think one of the more interesting things is when classifications go the other way to the way they went originally. And recently we were looking at a lot of the Bond films again for the forthcoming Blu-ray set and this gave us an opportunity to have another look at Diamonds Are Forever, which was a film that was passed PG on video long before we had a 12 certificate available. Looking at it today, where, where we do have the 12 certificate, it, it seemed quite hard to justify retaining the film at the PG level. Um, I'm not sure if you remember, but there's a sequence very early in the film in which Bond is trying to track somebody down and there's this slightly farcical sequence where he's asking one person or then the next person where this this person he's searching for is and one of the people he approaches is a woman lying on a beach in her bikini and of course once she turns around there's the usual banter between her and Bond and then unexpectedly Bond rips her bikini top off and strangles her with it which is certainly not the kind of image that you you would conventionally ex expect to see in a PG film nowadays. So we, we, we did have a think about this. And of course, when you've got films like Diamonds Are Forever that are so well known, you do pay some attention to the fact that it is a known quantity. But the fact is, with Diamonds Are Forever, most people have 
watch the film on television and in fact perhaps unsurprisingly that sequence is often removed from television yeah. so although people might say it's a bit odd to push a film up from PG to 12 after all these years often what they're remembering is not the full version of the film so, so that was an interesting case of uh, a classification being raised and we should say also we're talking about lots of cuts and interventions that we've made over the years plenty of Bond films went untroubled uh, through the BBFC, Live and Let Die, Spy Who Loved Me, Moonraker, Few Eyes Only. That's yeah. just a few that I, I can see that had no cuts at all. Uh, something that you get in a lot of Bond films is shadow dancing women. And I, I can know because I was a teenage boy for a while when these Bond films were coming out and I paid particularly close attention to that opening sequence on occasions that some of them were definitely saucier and closer nearer in the knuckle than others, weren't they? Yeah, I think there's always a tendency with uh, this kind of thing where, where you've got an ongoing theme or idea in a series that you'll, you'll, you'll see how far you can push it next time. And generally speaking, the board took a fairly lenient view of those shadow dancing sequences. But, but when they got too explicit, by the time we got to, I think it was Octopussy, uh, the board was looking at it just as closely as a lot of teenage boys would be and, and did notice that there was some sight of nipples reasonably clearly in, in one shot during the opening titles of Octopussy and that was a case where the board had to go back to the producers and say enough is enough, uh, can you tone this down a bit? So certainly the opening sequence of Octopussy was slightly darkened. Okay, Craig, thank you so much for your encyclopedic knowledge as ever. And if people want to see you in the flesh, they can go down to the Duke of York Theatre in Brighton on the 28th of October, talking about the Evil Dead and the Video Nasty era. Uh, don't forget the BFI Film Festival, marking a century of the BBFC, and of course our book, which will be out in November. We will be back with another podcast in the near future. Uh, you can email us if you've got any questions about our work or you want us to feature anything in particular on the podcast. Our email address is podcast at bbfc.co.uk. Thank you to our editor, Catherine Anderson. I'm James Blatch. He's Craig Lapper. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. I've got an edge. Down there.